Hello, welcome to episode 46 of Herpetological Highlights. Uh, my name is Tom Major and co-hosting with me as per is Ben Marshall. And in this 46th episode of the podcast, we're going to be talking about the musk turtle, the common musk turtle, Sternotherus odoratus. Wait, come on, that's got to be one of the better uh, Latin names, right? For sure. Odoratus? <laughs> I think, yeah, any descriptive name is good, but a descriptive name that describes it being stinky is just amazing. What a, it's just brilliant. Um, the reason we're doing this topic is because one of our very generous patrons asked us to, Philip Iovino. So thank you, Philip. And uh, yeah, we hope that this episode is as good as you hope it will be. Um, I think we'll do. We'll, I think we'll do these. What do they call them? Stink pots. Stink pots. Yeah. Stink pot. How? What a what a horrible horrible name for a perfectly good animal. <laughs> yeah, I know. I have to say, I just they're so cool, musk turtles. They were uh, a bit of a mystery to me prior to this, but now, I mean, they're just amazing. Everything about them is cool. Like they're just. Well, as we'll see, I I think they're just they're great little animals. Um, but yeah. They're called the stink pot turtle, which is because they're smelly, which makes so much sense. And it, like you say, it even translated into the scientific name, the species epithet is odoratus, which is just stinky. They're widespread, abundant species that's found all along the coast of the eastern United States, from the northeastern states down into Florida. It's also found into Canada. Uh, northernmost species of any musk turtle, and they are seemingly relatively habitat generalist they just like water preferably permanent shallow water but they do seem to stray into fast-flowing streams on occasion um how what you're saying common really does do them justice then yeah they're common widespread generalist common they're common as muck um the carapace the carapace is brown or black and has a smooth oval shape with a very high dome if you can imagine that it's like a you know like a deep bowl as opposed to a shallow bowl yeah exactly um and yeah they're kind of they're quite dark in color aren't they like like i say brownie black. yeah the skin's dark colored as well and they've got these two yellow lines that run from the front of their snout to the neck um one on either side of the eye and uh they've got these little barbels on their chin which makes them look like they've got a little goatee and they've got another one on the underneath of their neck and that's one way you can distinguish common musk turtles from other musk turtles as these little barbels. Other ones don't have them. And um, we mentioned they're, well, they're charming, aren't they? They yeah, are absolutely they're... charming little creatures. They're... I think that's what's so. They're like um, compact terrapins. Yeah, they are. They are. They're just like little miniature versions of pocket turtles yeah they are they're really cool and uh yeah like we said they're called either stink pot or musk turtles and that name is appropriate because if you pick one up and start dicking around with it it's going to release some phenol alkalinic acid which is excreted from glands and they create a pungent musky odor which apparently is not very nice i've never actually smelt it but no neither neither have i i've never even seen a musk turtle oh i've seen a musk turtle in captivity they're very cute um, but you didn't make it stink. No, it was pretty chill actually. Uh, I think it was, you know, it understood. It understood that humans were not worth stinking about, so it didn't bother. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're little Saving as well. Stink for another day. Yeah, they're small, right? So the females are mature, yeah. under ten centimeters long. Males at between six and seven centimeters. So they're tiny little turtles. And um, yeah, the females take four years to reach sexual maturity. Males take two, and um, do you want to hazard a guess how long they can live in captivity, Ben? Um, I'm going to say 42 and a half years. It's pretty close, mate. 55 years. Damn, it's higher. Pretty long lived yeah. term. That's, that's classic uh, Chelonian, isn't it? Mm. So that, to find out, well, I read that in a paper and then they'd cited a paper which sounded really interesting, which was um, a paper by... A lot to scroll through. Uh, Snyder and Bowler in 1992. And it's all about how long um, reptiles and amphibians can live based on the longest ones ever lived in captivity. And so... Uh, so I, slightly skewed. <laughs> well, I think it's a 
reasonably good indicator of like how long they could live without predation. So it's kind of like a reasonable or with supplementary feeding. Yeah, I think different stress. Yeah, I mean, I think to be honest, artificial light. Yeah, but I would say that <laughs> they're going to live dramatically longer than than they would in the wild for most cases. Yeah, I just wonder if that changes dramatically from one species to another. That's my like. Yeah, I get the I get the idea that you're taking the captive things will give you an idea. It's just you don't know how diverse those changes uh, will be for different species. Is all. What do you mean, like? Well, let's say you've got. You'd think. I suppose the, the premise of the paper to justify doing. Uh, looking captive individuals only is you can say okay we've got all our ones captive so we've got like we know that all of them are different from wild populations but you don't know how different they are from wild populations but you I'm presuming that the assumption is that it's all relatively consistent um, but well, I'm saying that some species do a lot better in captivity than others don't they uh yeah i would say probably um i think yeah. generally speaking um the majority of i mean the thing with this paper all it is is like the longest anyone any animal has ever lived in captivity of that species so they're not saying like they're not inferring too much but i just thought it would be an interesting aside to test your knowledge on some on the oh, longevity of right. some species. i mean <laughs> if, if by test knowledge you mean test ignorance then yes <laughs> <laughs> okay Please. So, uh, how long do you think a cane toad would live? Uh, 22 years. Wow, that's pretty good, mate. 24. You knew that. I, <sighs> I didn't actually know that. Did you not? <laughs> I could just see this toad. I saw this big fat toad in my mind. I'm like, yeah, you could outlive a lot of a lot of things. They... Wise, grumpy looking toad. What about, yeah. what about an American alligator? Oh, uh, I would go... I'd go 52. 74. Oh, much higher. There's one at the Welsh Mountain Zoo where I do my yeah, work I suppose... that's older than that 52. Yeah, I just, in my head, I was like, they probably get beaten up a lot, don't they? But if they're in captivity, they probably don't get beaten up a lot. Nah, they just get massive and old. Um, Ophiophagus Hannah, the king cobra. Uh, see, now this is one that I should know. I can't imagine many of them live this long in the wild. Well, at least not the ones you're looking at. I think at. it's enough of like mid-20s, isn't it? Uh-huh. Well, 22. Like 26? 22. 22. Yeah. It's a good guess. To be fair, you know your study species pretty well there. Well, I know <laughs> cane toads aren't your study species, but... Um, no, but... You're a toad fanatic, so I anticipated you'd have some idea. A special affinity for fat, ugly toad. Yeah. Alligator was a hard one, because... I mean, they're just really long-lived. Um, anyway, that was just a little tangent. Should we get back to the <laughs> musk turtles and their weird Yeah, remind mouths? me how long the musk turtles lived. 50-something. Uh, 55. 55. Mm. Yeah, so they're, pretty, they're, they're doing all right. For, for like a smaller turtle, they're doing pretty good. 55 years. It's quite a while. It's kind of funny to think yeah. of a turtle living that long. Like you know. Just... Yeah, for something that's only like... 10 centimetres long. Yeah, strolling the marshes for 55 years. Yeah, I've seen a lot of changes, some of these mass turtles, I'm sure. Yeah, no doubt, yeah. So um, let's introduce the first paper, because we've just been chattering about musk turtles. The first paper is by Heist, Nachev, Bicer, Lamel and Wisegrim in 2010. The fish and the turtle on the functionality of the oropharynx and the common musk turtle, Sternotherus odoratus, concerning feeding and underwater respiration. The anatomical record, Advances in Integrative Anatomy and Evolutionary Biology is the name of the journal. I thought the journal was called Oral Biology. Perhaps that's a weird... I think my citation stuff might have done it weird. I think your citation... I, I, I thought the journal is called The Anatomical Record. Oh, I thought it was called Oral Biology. I, I mean, I'm looking at the article and it says Anatomical Record. Oh, does it? Well, in that case, I concede. Where was I getting oral but biology? that being said, my citation software has also said, oh no, anatomical record advances in integrative anatomy and evolution biology. That's what mine says. the full title. 
Oh, right, okay. Maybe there was like a special issue on oral biology. Because it says at the top. Who knows? It doesn't really matter. Uh, if you want to find this paper, it will be in the show notes anyway. So you can just copy and paste it. And I just did that and found it. So you'll be fine. So, um, yeah. It's got pictures of musk turtles in it. There were, Yeah, there were a few pictures, but like not... I mean, it was just... We'll, we'll get on to the pictures. So, um, you know, of course, it goes without saying there's a correlation between the design of the oropharyngeal cavity and the feeding mode. How often do I say that, Ben? I say that to you well, all the time. Well, you, you do. You often harp on about uh, those words you said. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, anatomy words. Oropharyngeal. What does it mean? That's the question. What does that word mean? Apparently it means... Stuff in the mouth. Yeah. Relating to the part of the pharynx that lies between the soft palate and the hyoid bone. So it's basically the bit we would call the throat, isn't it? That's what I thought. Like, you know... If you, yeah, um, throat and like a little bit forward of that, right? Yeah. Like, it's including a little bit more. Yeah, sort of like the top of the mouth back to where you can sort of... Where you lose track of what you're swallowing. <laughs> <laughs> where you lose track of it. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Just... I think, you you know, your body as an entire thing doesn't lose track of it. More just you're less conscious of it. Yeah, that's it. I stopped caring. I just had a sip of water to experiment and um, once, yeah, once it's sort of done that main swallowy bit where you're concerned with choking, it really is just up to the body. And that's the pharyngeal, oropharyngeal cavity. Um, so to, to sort of talk generally about the oropharyngeal morphology of Chelonians, uh, tortoises generally have crazy stuff going on inside their mouths and down their throats with like all these weird appendages called pupillae that are just like lumpy bumpy and they help them when they're ingesting food and make the vegetation kind of like stick on and move downwards towards well down yeah. the throat if you want a great example of that you can search for sea turtle mouths mm. those things are wild the they leatherback, look, the really famous they leatherback. They look sci-fi, man. Yeah. They don't look real. It's horrible. Absolutely incredible. If you were a jellyfish, that would just be the worst way to meet your demise. Um, yep. Yeah, it would. But the idea is that those pupillae, those spikes that you're describing, you know, they help move the food down through the mouth and into the into the guts. And um, what are you calling these? Pupillae. Not papillae. Maybe it's papillae. I've written papillae twice. How many times? But I'm how not many, willing many, to commit. How many times have I written pupillae? I think it probably is papillae. Why have I written pupillae? Yeah, I've written papillae later. Why am I saying pupillae? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is what I was a little bit confused. I'm, like, I'm glad you caught that. I've got notes on papillae right here. But... I'm glad you caught that. Pupillae. <laughs> what is a pupillae? It's like a little... God knows. It's, it's like a... Yeah. Well, a, a... Ben, you've outed me as not knowing what I'm talking about. <laughs> Yeah, so well, it's all these big words. They're called papillae, and yeah, uh, yeah they're like little, these little lumps and lumps, bumps, bumps, knobs, and uh, yeah. well, so tortoises generally have them because they live on land. However, the general dichotomy is that aquatic turtles, at least freshwater ones, including including musk turtles that feed in the water, use suction to feed. So they draw in their food via suction, and so they don't necessarily have these weird you know, bobbly throats and kind of weird, mm. often weird bobbly tongues as well, which tortoises have. What do they call it? Hydrodynamic feeding mechanisms. Yeah. Hydrodynamic. <laughs> oh yeah, they use water. <laughs> Hydrodynamic feeding mechanisms is like when you drink the milk of your cereal. <laughs> but there's still cereal in it. Yeah, so you're like sucking them up. Um, yeah. So yeah, they set out to investigate the tongue morphology and not just tongue morphology, but also the sort of throat morphology and see how it pertains to their food. But that's not all. They also, there's been some suggestion, going back as early as 1949, that their kind of throaty area has a role to play in getting oxygen from water. So they might be throat breathing underwater. So that was another mm -hmm. premise of this paper. They wanted to see if they could check that out, see if these structures could be being used for the turtle to breathe underwater. Which is an amazing idea, which I hadn't heard before. Imagine that. Anyway. Breathing underwater through your mouth. Yeah, I mean... 
it seems quite reasonable when you say it like that. But um, does it, it? It's not like. I mean, yeah, it's like gills, but in your mouth. Jesus. I mean, yeah, that's still. I mean, I would love to be able to do it, but it, it's crazy. I didn't think that things could do that. I thought you had to have gills. Um, well, I mean, that's that's what I'm saying. I mean, it's not dissimilar from gills. It's pulling oxygen out of water. I suppose water. not. Yeah, it's just the gills are also their sort of tongue and what they used to eat stuff with. Which now I say it like that it sounds really, really weird. And <laughs> yeah, creepy. filthy, filthy mouth breathers. So <laughs> the way they did this to see how the turtles were using their um, mouth anatomy and throat anatomy to eat. Um, Without the benefit of hydrodynamism in the water, they filmed the turtles eating on land. They basically took all the water out of an aquarium and then they filmed them eating little pieces of fish. Um, that was funny and kind of mean because... I feel like this whole paper had a slightly mean edge to it. <laughs> These poor little turtles being fed stuff, but being fed stuff in... How many, how many turtles did they put through this horrible, horrible uh, trickery? There wasn't that many. There was like 10. Yeah, t- 10 or 15, something yeah. like that. I think 15 is the second paper. But the idea is to test whether they need water to feed by having them have no water and then providing them with something to eat, just see- it just seems torturous. <laughs> it's pretty funny, though, because they were really keen to eat it, but then they just couldn't, <laughs> couldn't do it. Well, the Every... juveniles and the sub-adults were. The adults were onto this straight away and just ignored it. They were oh, yeah. out of it. They do like, oh, all right. We played this game before. We've we've learned our lesson. <laughs> we know we can't eat out of the water. <laughs> yeah, but the juvies kind of pick it up, mash it around a bit, and then they just put it down. They try swallowing it, but they just cut. They've got no means to do so, so they just drop it on the floor. And the photos are quite. Funny. And that's that. That's yep. what the photos. Just, well. This musk turtle fumbling around with a yeah. piece of. What is it? Piece of fish? Yeah, it? it's a little piece of fish. Yeah. Oh. Um, it basically comes up to it, it looks really keen, and it looks, you know, it's super cute, it like bites it, and then it just like keeps trying to bite it, and then eventually it's just a photo with a piece of fish in front of a turtle that looks like a bit disappointed <laughs> and like upset and embarrassed, I well, think. It's got these beautiful, slightly googly eyes, so yeah. it's just sort of staring off into the middle distance. <laughs> Poor little thing. Um, uh, but yeah, so... I, it, it's, it's, it's fine, it got food other times, right? Yeah, they also, they did feed them, I assume. Um, But they also, so that was that, you know, they can't use the, so that weird bobbly tongue, they basically discovered it's not for feeding on land like a tortoise, because they failed. Well, and also what was cool is when when the juveniles and sub-adults were given food, they'd take it back into the water so they could actually eat it. So Mm. they're somewhat aware of what was preventing uh, it from swallowing it they're not so dumb that it's just like oh i'm on land i found food oh i can't eat it yeah they knew what was going on they knew what they needed yeah no fair play credit where credit's due they didn't know they needed water but um the juveniles were just too excited to actually ignore food which is fair enough well and weren't they saying that juveniles have been found to actually forage on land in the wild yeah they have occasionally yeah very occasionally so there might be that case of a slight niche partitioning so you know keeping the adults and juveniles slightly separate in the wild so they're not competing immediately, mm. giving the juveniles a little bit of a better chance. Ah, uh, yeah, so the juveniles are accustomed to grabbing it and taking it back to the water, whereas adults yeah. just wouldn't really do that. Yeah, Adults don't need to. They've, they've, they've earned their stripes, and now they're in the water, and that food's theirs. Mm. Cool that these turtles really don't come out of the water when they're adults. They just mooch around in the water. They don't really need yeah. to bask or anything. I, res- I respect that. I guess that's kind of a benefit of being... Just these little turtles, they're sort of thermoneutral, <laughs> bowling around in the water. Anyway, yeah. we'll get onto that more in the next paper. But um, the tongue, so they, they did some microscopy on pieces of the throat and tongue to see what was going on with it. And uh, this is a direct quote from the paper. The tongue of S. odoratus was small with a fl- flannel-like appearance. <laughs> you, you att- Yeah, you jumped on that flannel bit. What did that as mean? Well, right? Yeah. Um, flannel. Because you look at the pictures... Mate, that's the weirdest looking flannel I've ever seen. Does flannel mean something else in America? That's what I'm wondering. Flannel? Like a flannel shirt, maybe? You know, like the... Yeah, but... Oh, doesn't yeah, really look yeah, like that. Maybe. It doesn't really look like that to my eyes. But then again, I don't know. I didn't really spend too long looking at the images because they didn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I prefer... Well, I much prefer the I words. am now. <laughs> 
There's just I'm, lots I'm looking of... at it and it's Ooh. I can't even I can't even begin to describe it. Yeah. I mean that's like a, a... Like a lot of squished lentils or something. <laughs> There's a lot of really close up papillae in the later images as well. Um but regardless, it apparently has a flannel like appearance. If anyone's wondering what me and Ben think a flannel is, it's this like very small towel which holds moisture. It's just a and tiny you can use towel. It to, use it to wash yourself with. Um maybe it doesn't mean that <laughs> maybe it doesn't mean that to other people. Who knows? No, what what it actually means you see the, the pictures of the turtle tongue? Yeah. They actually look more flannel-like than what we think a flannel is anyway, right? So we're just, we're completely backwards. Maybe. That's actually perfectly flannel-like. We just don't know what it would be in in non-turtle tongue. What the hell is a flannel? Context. What flannel? Flannel <laughs> is a soft woven fabric of various fineness. Ah, so maybe it, pref- maybe it refers to the woven look of it. Flannel-like. Do you think that tongue looks flannel-like? It looks to me like loads of, I don't know, loads of little pieces of... Fried egg. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, loads of pieces of fried eggs stacked on top of each other. That's weird. I don't. wouldn't have said it looked like flannel in any of the meanings of flannel. But anyway, I think <laughs> the lesson from this, if the authors are listening, is um, use these weird sort of... Don't use like... I wouldn't say it was slang, but, you know... If you're going to use something to describe something else, make sure your audience is going to actually appreciate what a flannel is, because this is a real cultural faux pas you've made here, where <laughs> two English people deeply, deeply confused by your use of the word flannel to describe something which doesn't even remotely resemble a flannel. And flannel, I think it's no, flannel, I think it's great. It gets you thinking. Common. It gets you considering Maybe the actual morphology. It. Because as immediately as soon as I read flannel, I was like, I'm going to look at the pictures. Yeah. And um, it, it's prompted this actual deep consideration of, of what the tongue looks like. So I, I think they're onto a winner. And so, actually, <laughs> thinking more about it, absurd. If you if you go to Figure Three A, and you look at the very top of Figure Three A, and it has these little like bits sticking out. Now, hear me out. Okay. Imagine you froze a flannel, and then did the cross section thing of a flannel. Uh, like oh. longitudinally, then it would look like that, would it not? Oh, it's yeah. just because we're looking at the pictures where the flannel's been all flattened out. Wow! Like someone ironed it. I don't know why they iron a flannel, but wow. that's I'm suddenly understanding a lot more. Jesus, that was meta. What you did there? Yeah, that's crazy. It does. It does look like a cross-sectional because flannels have their own papillae because they're designed to have high surface area for water retention, exactly. soap, soap application. It's a whole thing. Maybe flannel is actually the perfect description. The more we consider it, flannel's flannel is perfect. But is that still the cross section of the tongue? Figure A. It is flannel like yeah. papillae. Wow. Wow. So there you go, mate. Jeez, I was completely wrong. I'm sorry. That's mate. Well, all we've really done is talk about the flannel like appearance of the tongue. But basically, as we said earlier, aquatic. Feeders usually have a small and smooth tongue as opposed to this like papillae ridden bumpy tongue. Um, but these turtles are an exception to that. They um, do have the bumps despite being hydrodynamic aquatic feeders. So um, they have this kind of weird mixture where their tongue is actually quite small and quite weak, but it's got numerous papillae. But why? So why? Why do they have this? Because they don't use it for terrestrial feeding. Because as we've already discovered, they suck at that. They're they, terrible. They, they actually can't feed terrestrially whatsoever. <laughs> so the truth is even more interesting. And it is what we kind of touched on earlier, which is that they are using their tongue and parts of their throat to extract oxygen from the water. So the high surface area of the papillae means more area for gas exchange. As a result, these little turtles can stay underwater for 100 days without coming up for air when they're hibernating. Provided it's 10 degrees. Provided it's 10 degrees and provided they don't get excited and providing they don't start jiggling around. Because if they do that, they're going to need oxygen. Because that Mm. jigging around or being remotely excited or being warm. Yeah, these things cost oxygen. Um, But yeah, essentially, the take-home message is that common musk turtles, these little stinkers, can breathe underwater. Amazing. Which is 
pretty remarkable, and they do it through a creepy flannel-like looking tongue. Yeah, and other turtles apparently can do this as well, and some of them use something called a cloacal bursae, which is basically a butthole purse which can breathe. But these turtles don't have that. They're a little bit classier than that, let's face it. Yeah, I mean, that cloacal Bursae. <laughs> it's a horrible thing. I don't want to... Less said about those, the better, I think. And the other the other option is with your soft-shelled turtles or turtles with thinner skin. They can do it straight through the skin. No need for these fancy tongues or whatnot. But these guys, these musk turtles, thick, keratinized... Keratinized? Their mm. shells are. Their shells are very keratinized. Their skin probably is less so keratinized, but it's thick enough to prevent any sort of gas exchange mm. in that way. So everything's pointing to this tongue as being the uh, the critical uh, breathing apparatus, I mm. guess. I have to say, I thought this paper would be really hard going, but I enjoyed it immensely. Like, it was so interesting. Like, yep. so, um, so approachable as well, as someone who doesn't know anything about mouth morphology i really only had to google a couple of things and we got there that's what was nice actually yeah i once you got past the initial like big words where mm. the big words were used again you're like okay yeah i know them in context now and it yeah flowed a lot easier mm. so, i did halfway through forget what uh cl was i thought what the hell was this was it this one that i forgot what cl was or oh, the next paper i was like oh uh I don't know. I what do they remember acronyms. C- CL. I was like, oh, well, no idea what these acronyms are, but it's just carapace length. Ah, uh, like, so oh, it's like co- TL. Of course it is, or SVL, SVL, or anything like that. And I was just, oh, okay, yeah, that's 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 fine. Shortening that because <laughs> I think uh, people reading turtle papers will be quite well up on CL being carapace. <laughs> yeah, length. you're like CL. Some weird made up thing. <laughs> <laughs> Because you do get that in papers where people are like, okay, we'll just shorten this down and it's something you've never heard of. And halfway through the paper, it hasn't been used for a couple of paragraphs. And you're like, wait, wait, what? ER what? Something here? Could have been anything, though. Yeah. Traipsing back, yeah. Um, Okay, so now we know that these little turtles can breathe underwater and they can't eat very well on land. If They can't eat at all on land. They're just incapable. Um, They don't have the mouth morphology but now i think it would be interesting to learn a little bit more about their ecology and perhaps even what they're eating at least in one small part of their range Mm, we know how but what Mm. so uh second paper is looking at the diet of radio tract musk turtles in a small urban stream uh it's by Wilhelm and Plummer, published in Herpcon Bio in, when was it? 2012. Herpcon Bio is such a good journal. I love it. Herpetological Conservation Biology. Nice and open access. The only thing that I don't like about Herpcon Bio is the way they don't include the DOIs on the title page of their uh, articles. Hmm interesting and specific thing to dislike yes i think but uh do they even have dois i don't know because i don't have one that's been pulled up by my citation stuff don't know because so i don't I, that I need... might actually be the one reason i don't dig what her bio is doing everything else brilliant they must that have one little sticking point <laughs> they must have dois no because that means then otherwise they're just not a journal <laughs> No, I think it's. I, I mean, DOI is what you get once you've um, like registered as a scientific publication. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't think it's. I don't think it's mandatory because Herp Review also does not have them. Herp Review doesn't have it. Well, it doesn't have it for all its little notes and stuff. That's why I. Okay. That's why I go on about how I hate how they're all unindexed and Mate, stuff. Getting fine when you find out you need to get something from. Herp, uh, what is it? Hurt review. Good grief! You're yeah. for a slog. Some, I do like that it's all oh, freely online. It's an now. operation, but you have to download well, like six hundred papers just to read the one you want. Yeah, the entire issue. Mm. And then you say, I just want that natural history note. Yeah, why not just let them be uploaded as individual PDFs? 
I mean, they are by the authors. Our one is most well. One of the ones is up on ResearchGate, but now I'm on Herbcon Bio. And I'm going to get to the bottom of this. Okay. I'm going to look at Volume Two. Uh, no, Volume Ten from 2015, Issue Two. It's got a picture of a beautiful-looking monitor lizard. And I'm going to look at whatever the top one is, something about indigo snakes. That's quite a cool-sounding paper, actually. <laughs> uh, and I see, ne- I see no DOI on the PDF immediately. And I don't see anything at the end. And there is nothing on oh. the website. And I'm pretty sure if I throw this into Google Scholar... And hit the site thing. We won't get anything from there either. Nope. What they do have is an ISSN number. Oh, that's the one I'm thinking of. Where that that's the journal. That's the like. Right. Yeah, that's the like thing you get. That's what I meant when I said yeah. It's the ISSN number you got to get. Yeah. I was wrong. But this is that's a weird aside. Um, yeah, it was a bit. Musk turtles in a small urban stream. What are they eating? Okay. Are they having a good time? So, basically, the premise of this paper is there's some Asiatic clams, which are <laughs> an invasive species in North America. And it's like, oh, these goddamn yeah. clams coming over here, negatively influencing the competitive interactions of native macroinvertebrates, and it just grinds yes. my gears, you know? And the nutrient cycling. Oh, everything. So, map turtles. Clam. Map turtles. We're going to get off... We're going to get away from musk turtles just for a brief second. Map turtles have shown a willingness to eat these invasive clams elsewhere. But the premise of this paper is, will musk turtles do the same? Essentially, these Asiatic clams have proliferated all over these waterways. They've become incredibly abundant because they're an invasive species. And the turtles live in these waterways. And musk turtles are known to be generalists with what they eat. They've been reported feeding on crayfish, insects, mollusks, fish amphipods, arachnids, algae, seeds, and other plant material, which doesn't fall into the category of seeds or algae, uh, which is and maybe you, and you, leaves. You've got to say, the old common musk turtle loves snails. Yeah, they do. They love snails. They're mad for snails. Yeah, that's their, that seems to be their like top, top of their menus, snails. Well, in the world, they've been shown to eat snails in both Florida and Oklahoma. And there was an experiment where they, they took a musk turtle to a buffet and it picked <laughs> snails every time. Every time. And that Went is only partly a joke. That actually was a study where they asked turtles what they liked by offering them loads of food at once. And they always picked them. Well, they didn't always, but they showed a dramatic preference for yes. snails. Um. However, bivalves, so this clam, how would you describe it? It's like, uh, what's the name of the clam? There's a scientific uh, name. Corbicula. Corbicula? Corbicula something. Corbicula clam. Corbicula. Is it even described to the species? Yeah, oh, Corbicula fluminia. Okay, cool. So this Corbicula yeah. fluminia, it looks like your classic clam, you know, it's sort of, <laughs> it does I can a, see it now. It's smooth. It's smooth and it's got like, you know, a clam is kind of fan shaped with two completely symmetrical bits to it. Um, and it like opens, you know, the, bo- the bottom hinge is narrow, the top is wide. So it's like two, if you get your hands and you spread your fingers and touch them together and then po- press your palms together, open your hands at your palms and pretend you're filter feeding, you've basically got a good clam. That's what they look like, I would say. And um, they look exactly like oh. the clams you'd get in a paella. What? You know what I'm saying. Anyway, do the must tell us. No, even. I don't. What? You don't know what paella what, is? Like the little... Well, it's a, it's a baked spa- pastry dish, isn't it? No, it isn't. It's rice. It's rice, you goon. Oh, is it rice? Yeah, it's rice. Well, then evidently, no, I do not know what it really is. It's like Spanish. You put clams you. in it, do you? You have seafood paella. I mean, obviously we don't, but other people who eat clams would be all over that. Yeah, it's. I just thought you were talking about the little bits of those little shell pastas. 
<laughs> or they, you know what they look like? They look like those um, chocolates. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they do. Uh, what are they called? The Gullion. 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 Gullion? Choc- How do you pronounce yeah. that? I mean, not all of them, because there's a, like a little prawn one or something, isn't there? Yeah, the prawn but, uh, one. It's too real. I like the, the one that looks like a clam. Yeah, the clam ones that you get from Lidl. <laughs> Banging. They're really nice, actually. They're like marble, aren't they? They've got like white chocolate, yeah. milk chocolate. Yeah. Very delicious. The Nougati center. Yeah, really good, actually. No, they praline, actually praline center. Best. Recently, I've been getting chocolate boxes of chocolates. I've had a couple for Christmas. <laughs> but um, none of those. Those have not been featured. No, we've got to be talking about clams. Sorry, I haven't had any breakfast. So, okay, so basically... They had a bunch of radio track tales. We're not going to go into what radio telemetry is. If you don't know, look it up. Um, they caught them and they squeezed the poo out. They just literally got the turtle. They squeezed it as hard as they could till the poo came out. Um, and they then put it in tubes. Yeah, they actually didn't. And squeeze they put them. it in the oven. Yeah, I'm just kidding. They actually left them in a jar of water until they pooed, and then they collected the poo. So there was no turtle squeezing. Whatsoever. It would have been quite hard to squeeze a turtle with a hard carapace. It, Soft shells, you could probably do that for. You just need one of those. Okay. Um, bench vices if you just put it in a vice <laughs> tight in the vice yeah i think that would i think that would just end the turtles <laughs> poor little guys oh, we got another one cracked here yeah i think it'd be horrible but anyway they didn't do anything horrible to the turtles they literally just no, every cup every few weeks they'd catch them put them in a jar of water until they pooed and presumably they're pooing quite a lot as they're kind of actively foraging um and then they collected the poo and they were looking at the constituents of the poo uh, in terms of you know what 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 animals made up the poo, and then they were comparing that to samples of the riverbed where the turtles existed, to see whether or not they were truly generalists that were just eating what was available, or whether or not they were specialising in something, avoiding something, etc., etc., etc. Well, you say they compared it to the substrate, as in the riverbed, but did they? Because um, did they not? I don't. I didn't get the imp- like they've they've done it in a way that they've got two the two things in the table, yeah, yeah. But the relative importance index or whatever they call it, IRI, which I can't see what the proper full thing was was based on the relative importance within the uh, within the turtles. I believe. Because uh, we have... Re- yeah, here we go. Index of relative importance for each pro category uh, was mean percentage of total volume, percentage frequency of each prey item category. So it's just stuff coming from the turtles. Yeah. And then they've got... After that, they've got what percentage frequency and volume and mass the substrate samples had those ingredients in so like what they've basically done is ordered them by uh, i suppose they haven't really done any sort of there's there's i don't think there's any statistical comparison between the substrate uh available food and the food actually found in the turtles i mm. think that is done just by basically comparatively it. by frequency and percentage mm. but it is quite clear that the volume of the f- I mean, it's like ninety-four percent of the, or ninety-three percent of the um, volume of the substrate sample foods are corbicular, <laughs> that invasive clam. Yeah, yeah. And then they've got sixty percent of their diet is that. But then yes. again, seeds make but up a very also... small percentage of a substrate sample, but they're a massive right. part of the turtle's diet. So that's what I was sort of expecting later on in the paper was to come across a uh, like a preference index that was comparing the relative availability to the available actual use because yes the most inve- the invasive clam is eaten the most but because it's also the most available it, it doesn't seem like there's an active selection for it as such they're just eating it because it's most available yeah whereas you say the seeds were very or a much lower availability perhaps is more selected for because they're having to put in more effort to find the smaller infrequent seeds in amongst other stuff yeah but I don't think that's directly 
looked into. Yeah, no, they kind of missed the trick, didn't they? They just described what they were eating and described what was there, but they didn't actually draw any direct comparison between. Yeah, and I think all the data is there because you can, you can certainly for like habitat preference and stuff. It's a bit rough and ready, but you can do it straight off percentages. Hmm. But you would need. You'd have relative proportions of available, and you'd have relative proportions of used. Yeah. Yeah, I think you do that just fine. Yeah, perhaps they should have gone into a bit more detail and put the radio telemetry stuff in a different paper. Are you sure there isn't a another paper alongside this that does? I'm not more? sure, but they did go into quite a lot of detail with regards to the radio telemetry stuff. Hmm, they did. I don't know, but um, yeah. So I mean, the general appearance is that yeah they're you know they're eating a lot of these uh corbicular clams and they're making up a lot of the substrate but as you say ben there's not like a statistical proper analysis of choice i guess you could say exactly that's what you can't say you can't say that they're mm. picking the clams over other stuff particularly no. more just that they're using them because they're available no. which is still ex you know, extremely interesting because this is an invasive species. This is a species that they're perhaps not familiar with. Yeah. But it's making up the majority of their diet right now. Yeah, you can definitely say they're adaptable. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the clams make up more than 90% of the volume of substrate samples and then 60% of the volume of the fecal samples. So they're definitely munching on clams um, as well as what other snails. What do you seed. say, 60 60%? Of the volume of their fecal samples. Yeah. Oh right, yeah, it was it was uh, mollusks overall that was seventy two percent. Yeah, so that was other snails yeah. too. Yeah, they do love their snails. They love them, and I don't blame them. I don't blame <laughs> them. Snail, I've eaten a snail. It tasted fine. Um, yeah. Would so... you want it to be like twenty two percent of your diet, or sorry, twelve and a half percent of your diet? Uh, uh yeah. As I wouldn't want to have them for breakfast though. As long as I don't have to have them for breakfast, that'd be weird. Okay. Snail. Just have them as a little snack in the middle of the afternoon. <laughs> yeah, that would be okay. Past lunchtime, okay. snail me up. But prior to that, <laughs> I'm good. No, no way. Yeah, just, nah. So, they also had, because obviously they were doing radio telemetry on these, and they had some quite interesting observations from their radio telemetry study. Um, mm. I mean, just generally speaking, the turtles really like staying by the bank, hanging around in the shallow yep. water. Avoided the deep central channel. Yeah. yeah. They have quite small home ranges of like 123 by 60 meters on average. So they're kind of just mooching around in this shallow water and eating all the clams in these little relatively small areas, which overlap with other turtles. There's yes. lots of turtles about. But how long was the tracking actually done for? Because they were caught May, June time. They did the And they were tracked until... August wasn't until August sixth, so you're looking at you know three four months of tracking data, I suppose. From when to when? Sorry, say it again. May June time until August, early August. Mm, okay, so they're probably missing out a month or two of their active season. Maybe, but if it gets colder and they sort of chill out and. Yeah. Uh, I don't, don't know. do much. That might actually be the bulk of their home range anyway. Yeah, it's true. And I don't know. I can't imagine them. My, do they? Maybe they migrate at the beginning or end. So maybe they hibernate somewhere different. But it sounds like they kind of just hibernate under yeah. the water. That's what the other one was suggesting, wasn't it? If you yeah. can chill under the water at three degrees for, what, 150 days or something. Yeah. 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 So it's probably pretty, pretty good. Um, but yeah, they also like... There was one particular area where one side of the water body had lots of overhanging vegetation and the other side didn't. And they tended to prefer the area with overhanging vegetation. And as we said earlier, they're not necessarily going to be coming out to bask. They're pretty much just enjoying the temperature of the water. Um, they're just kind of bowling around, not, you know, they're just staying submerged in the shallow water. You know, they often hunt at night and they hunt by kind of walking along the bottom and looking for stuff, which is obviously why they come into contact with so many clams. Um, mm. The other thing I thought was interesting was that they love hanging out in muskrat burrows. Um, Musk turtles in muskrat bo yeah, burrows. Yeah, they, they share an interest in muskiness. 
Yeah. Got lots to talk about. Compliments each other. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, they did really like it, didn't they? It was, what was it, 30% of the times the turtles were relocated? Yeah. And vir- they were in one of those burrows? Yeah, and virtually all of them, it was like 13 out of 15 or something, were actually found in a muskrat burrow at some point during the study. Yeah. Yeah, which is fascinating. I mean, that's really muskrats providing a ecosystem service for... Uh, that's not the right word. Being ecosystem engineers, I suppose. Yes. For uh, musk turtles. And if musk turtles are using them, you can bet you that uh, other species are using them, very much like uh, what gopher tortoises do um, in the southern US. Yeah. Yeah, mammals do have their uses, as it turns out. They <laughs> dig the holes. <laughs> to, to protect the little the little turtles. Yeah, mammals dig the holes. Um, so, yeah, essentially, we have this uh, molliciferous population here where the corbicular mm. clams are taken over. They're eating all the snails, corbicular clams. Um, and yeah, it's a diet generalist being opportunistic and eating what's there, which is no real surprise, is it? They're kind of these industrious little turtles just getting on with it. Just making it work. Yeah. I did really like, uh, unless you've got anything else to jump in and say there, some of the final remarks they were saying about how uh, other species have been shown to so- show uh, I suppose adaption or phenotypic plasticity, as in flexibility, uh, towards a slightly different head shape and a larger gape and potentially even a stronger bite to make use of the most available food source. So it's interesting you've got this invasive species coming in and actually shifting the morphology of your native species. Yeah, they could well be in, in time, yeah. Yeah. Very that, cool. That is cool. It's weird to think that, but um, yeah, it's mad because obviously we just consider these human mediated introductions in the short term where it's like something's happening, you know, the community composition is changing or whatever. But then to then, you know, potentially begin to see evidence of like rapid evolution as a result of that kind of an introduction in another species is pretty wild. Yeah. It's pretty wild. It is. It really is because it is evolution on a scale that you can witness. Mm. yeah hopefully there'll be some stuff coming out about that in the future because that'd be really fun to podcast about they they say they say it's it's currently under investigation, investigation. well good luck yeah. with your investigations team and uh yeah we'll be straight on Looking to, forward it. to it it might even have already come out under our noses and we just don't know in which case if you know yeah that, that's possible if you know that don't just listen scoffing at us and our ignorance get in touch <laughs> <laughs> well, or just feel free to scoff I mean this is a 2012 paper it's probably out mm. and actually it's probably quite easy to find yeah yeah cool so that's musk turtles um, you know really cool little turtles pretty stinky um, and like yeah generalist happy-go-lucky little little dudes yeah Sorry, I'm 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 looking for the I'm looking for the paper. I'm dying for an answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, while you do that, I'll introduce our species of the bye week. So, this I don't see it. Okay, it doesn't exist. That's fine. Well, so, maybe at least if it does, they haven't cited the paper that we're talking about. Oh, they which definitely is unusual. Will. Yeah, you'd cite yourself in that yeah. situation without a shadow of a doubt. So, um, yeah, this new species of the bye week is by Farkas, Ziegler, Pham, Ong, and Fritz, 2019. So this year, fresh off the press, a new species of Pelodiscus from northeastern Indochina, and this is published in Zuki's. Yes. So, a little bit further afield from our American musk turtles. Almost as far away as you could possibly be in some ways. Hmm. You can't be too fussy, though, when it comes to new turtles, because they don't really get described nope. all that often. And this guy is pretty wicked because it's a soft-shell turtle, yeah. which, let's face it, are pretty special. So Not just because they're disappearing faster than you can describe them, 
So they've got hilarious noses and they're brilliant. Yeah, they are. So this is in a group of Chinese soft-shell turtles from Vietnam and China, this one. Um, I'm curious to know, though, has anyone... I mean, have you, Ben, ever felt a soft-shell turtle? Have you ever touched one? No. How I've seen s- one with my eyes. Uh, you didn't see it with your hands? Nah. Well, there were there were gators in the place where it was, so... Mm, okay. It seemed yeah. a bit... Seems a bit risky. <laughs> yeah, no, you don't want to tangle with something that can back itself against the gate. I can see what you'd... So, if anyone who's listening has ever touched one and can tell us how soft they actually are, I'd be lo- I'd love to know. I mean, are they... Can we can we get it on a scale of one to flannel? <laughs> yeah, that'd be perfect. Yeah, but just like... Uh, how squashy is a soft-shell turtle? Is it soft at all? Is it a misnomer? It could be a, It could be an ironic thing, and we wouldn't know. Um... <laughs> Yeah. Well, anyway, as they, an aside, they, I'm. I don't think it's a complete misnomer. Okay. Because they, they're softer than a musk turtle, for example. Hmm. Okay. Otherwise, saying that the musk turtles had like thick skin and a solid carapace would be pointless. Because mm, yeah. that would just be a turtle trait. Yeah. Okay. Got, well, that's a good point. Yeah, that does suggest there's a variety of squidginess. So, um, yeah, if you know, tell us. I'd love to know. So, this new species of turtle, as I said, is from Vietnam and China. It's found in the northeast and down into the east of Vietnam and further north into China. Um, the genus Pelodiscus. far as I can tell, Pelodiscus is... Is it into China? Yes, it is, yeah. Huh. Yeah, see, oh, yeah, yep, it's just on that little island. <laughs> I was is, just looking at the mainland stuff. What is the island? Is it Hainan? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Cool. Okay, so that's where it is in China, Hainan. Okay, I should have said that. Okay, cool. Yeah, so it's there. Um, Pelodiscus is ancient Greek. As far as I could tell, I mean, I'm not 100% on this, but Pelo just can uh, is like mud or dirt. Mud disc. Uh, yeah, mud disc. That's brilliant. Yeah. Perfect. It is. Because they love the mud. They're disc shaped. What more could you want? And this is the fifth species in the genus Pelodiscus. Um, mm. Which is quite a widely distributed genus. We're talking all the way from north of Japan all the way down to the end of Vietnam, pretty much. That is wide distribution, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because previously it was thought. Wasn't it once thought that there was all just one species of Chinese soft-shell turtle and it was just incredibly widespread and now, you know, subsequently we it have better understanding. and Seems to be some proper distinctions, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, well, let's talk about the name of the turtle. Or should we talk about what it looks like? Let's, uh, let's start with name. Okay. We're talking about uh, distribution. So it's Pelodiscus variegatus, which... Uh, variegatus is a Latin adjective in the masculine gender alluding to the highly contrasting markings especially the large plastral blotches so basically it's just got these big colourful spots underneath well the spots are kind of greeny browny, blacky but their bellies are orange so they stand out a lot And um, yeah, like really orange like a um, sun-dried tomato sort of orange yeah, especially in the babies, the babies are crazy crazy yeah. orange um, but yeah, they're really beautiful underneath, and even their like little necks and almost round onto their cheeks have got little yellow spots. Uh, they got this kind of like pointy pig-like snout, um, quite a mean <laughs> eyes. They've got mean sort of quite intense eyes, long neck, but they can draw the neck mean in. Mean eyes. They've got mean eyes, Ben. Don't they have? You know they have. They got a long wrinkly neck, but their head can shrink back into the body almost completely by the look of it. Um, that photo in the top right, where it's just like, just poking his little nose out and his eyes. <laughs> it looks hilarious. Um, keeping, keeping himself safe. Yeah. It's just being manhandled by a bunch of researchers. <laughs> um, um, what else can we say about it? It's... They're not particularly big, but they're bigger than your little musk turtles. We're looking at carapace length of 171 for the holotype. Oh, Okay. So, 17 centimetres long, 15 centimetres wide. I imagine them to be bigger than that from the photos. Which is stupid, I should have just read the paper yes. properly. But 
Yeah. Some of the pictures have a ruler in them. Oh. <laughs> well, don't I feel foolish? But yeah, no, it's a really cool little turtle, and um, the photo of the habitat is quite a sort of. Um, it's a. It looks like a. Is it a lake? I think it's a lake. It in, looks like a reservoir, doesn't it? Yeah, it's like super like managed. It's like cropped lawns, some really fake looking trees. You know, it, just a monoculture of trees <laughs> that look like they've been they've been planted though. Don't you think it looks like a plantation forest? Um, yeah, it does. It it does look heavily disturbed, is what I'll say. Yeah, um, but you know, perhaps they're tolerant of that. It's soon to say because not a lot's known about them. Um, there isn't really a lot about their ecology in this paper. Um, it also says they're under high pressure, but it doesn't say why. Did you see anywhere where it said why? Sorry, not very much known about what? Why they're under pressure. Why they're um, threatened. Well, I was going to bring this up a little bit later, but they're basically saying because of its uh, restricted range. Yeah, it does which say... seems a little bit strange considering it's existing the entire length of Vietnam. Yeah, but also, um, is it for food? They didn't actually explicitly say. I don't know. I think they're probably getting eaten these little tails. Uh... Maybe. Like, I I don't disagree with what they're saying that it should be watched because you've got so many of these uh, newly described soft shell species as. Uh, unassessed but I wonder if the range limitation is actually the biggest problem and it's not more to do with how waterways are being managed in China there was a paper that I don't know off the top of my head about like nitrogen levels in in Chinese waterways and stuff and just how that's getting really problematic and uh, something that's got permeable skin and is very much reliant on freshwater ecosystems you can imagine yeah these guys are going to be really vulnerable to those sorts of changes yeah yeah it's range is like you know probably 800 kilometers long yeah and i do i really like the map they've got showing all the different uh, species across mm. china and japan and then down into vietnam and how You've got a couple of species that have been described slap bang in the middle of China, mm. but you've got this whole area surrounding it of uh, was that Sinensis? Cy- yeah, and it's like there's got to be a few more species in there. Yeah, gotta be. It does seem like, like if they if they're split up on that sort of finer scale in some places, you got to imagine like jumping onto the Tibetan Plateau or something like that, or on the edge of the Tibetan Plateau, you might be. Uh, seeing some species, and maybe even Taiwan is sufficiently detached to uh, have caused some speciation at some point. Mm, funny that they're in Japan, but there's none on the Ryukyu Islands down below between. Well, who says they're not there? I, don't I mean, know. You're, looking at, you're just looking at data that was uh, published in a couple of papers. So. Yeah, it's true. Maybe they are. They are, I mean, they're just cool little orange turtles. Found in Vietnam, and um, what are you googling? What am I googling? I'm I'm looking for nitrogen levels in Chinese waterways. Um, now whether I can find this paper again is going to be an absolute. Oh, apparently the Ryukyu Islands do have um, turtles, but they are a different genus. Yeah, different family completely. They're Geo Geomididae, which is a Roku leaf turtle. Very cute. Okay, I feel we're getting a little bit sidetracked. <laughs> yeah, just give me just give me two seconds. Okay. Well, there's actually there's a good one from 1970 to 2000 that's that's basically saying uh, that there's a lot of nitrogen going into the water. That's actually not a bad if people want to. I feel like there's a newer paper, but I cannot find it. Um, but it proves my point of that agricultural uh, runoff is a big deal. And it's open access, so people can actually read it if they want to. Cool, bang it in the show notes, people can check it out. Yep. 
So yeah, these little turtles under threat from various things. Um, the recommendation is that they should be critically endangered, which is unfortunate. Um, but yeah, I think the overarching theme is that we need to know how soft they really are. So if you know, tell us. <laughs> let's 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 get to the real hard hitting points. Here. <laughs> yeah, but no, brand new species of soft shell turtle with a pointy little face. Um, they're pretty cool. So. Um, yeah, enjoyed it. Exceptionally cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that ties up. That does us for turtles, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, again, that was thanks to Philip Iovino for suggesting that. And have we got any other business? We got some new patrons. Yes. That so takes top billing. We got Karina Oesting. Avalon Earhart, James Clark, and Paul Davenport. So thank you very much to all of you guys. Um, much appreciated. I hope I haven't Huge butchered you, any yeah. names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, welcome aboard. And also congratulations to Jax Greasel, who won the King Cobra t-shirt. That's on its way to you now. Um, Excellent. So yeah, the competition's over, so don't worry about entering now. Uh, we might do another one at some point in the future. But uh, if you want to buy a King Cobra shirt, you can. Well, I'm sure, it'll, I'm sure I could could rustle up another t-shirt design somewhere down the down the line yeah yeah given enough time <laughs> so uh have you got anything else any other business wise i don't did we get any are we are there any corrections that we need to dig into ah okay so we had a few messages off scott iper actually um, oh yes what have we got so scott was telling us about we, you know when we did our um, bonus episode about snake tongues or we were answering some questions about snake tongues um, mm. S- Scott has witnessed a lot of these tongues in use so um, he shared some photos which we'll share on social media as well but it was cool so oh, we, yes. we were so talking firsthand. about yeah exactly it's really cool so um, apparently Hydrophidae the true sea snakes are no longer in their own family they're now back in Elapidae um Oh, I'm. And then you'll listen to this this episode in half a year's time, and they'll be back out. Yeah, well, that's the current taxonomy. What? Are they in Elapidae? Yeah. So where is it? Uh... Yeah. Well, it seems actually. It seems like their um, the taxonomy between sea snakes is still a bit of a shaky. Yeah, it's really quite shaky. Um... That's to be honest. That was the impression I had before, but I just hydrophid, hydrophid, nay, no day. Yeah, well, I just, think just I, seems useful for those purposes as opposed to being just elapids, right? Yeah, well, I think uh, the subfamilies are hydrophinae and latacordinae for sea snakes and sea crates, respectively. So um, it seems like uh, people are okay. using that still because it's like so subfamily instead of family yeah so the group their positions haven't changed as such it's more no. just where you're putting the family yeah distinction. yeah so it's just okay that's fair that's fair enough so yep. human beings have decided on an arbitrary distinction based on monophyleticness uh, uh yeah i guess it doesn't really matter but that's you know that's the kind of updated view apparently um although i'm sure that people will agree and disagree with that that's the trouble with taxonomy um, well, that's but it's nice to bring it up because then you can make, okay if someone does bring it up in a different way you know that uh, that it's because of that as opposed to you're dealing with a totally different group yeah so it's worth mentioning hundred percent yeah so the other thing was that um, Af- Acrocordus have a bifurcated tongue so it's two parts but each side operates completely independently of the other side so it's like. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Wiggling around all <laughs> over the place. Yeah. yeah, the first picture with one going up and one going yeah, down. Yeah, it's bizarre. That's brilliant. It's awesome. That's brilliant. Yeah. See, we just need more studies on Aquacorda Day. Yeah, we do. We do. Uh, so, yes. Then Scott sent us a photo of uh, Pseudoferania polylepis, which is a homolopsid using its tongue underwater. So, there we go. Another homolopsid there. And uh, then he sent a photo of Hydrophis platura, which is a true sea snake. Adorable. Yeah. That's what it is. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just got this tiny little pokey thing out. Like, just just the forks come out. Um, really small. 
which is quite interesting. So yeah, some cool stuff from Scott, like some wicked photos, which we'll share on social media just after this, or perhaps when the episode comes out. So if you want to have a look at uh, an elephant trunk snake, no, is that an elephant trunk snake? Acrocordus. Well, I mean, Acrocordus species. Yeah, how many species are in Acrocordus anyway? What? No, okay, so uh, yeah. four or five? Yeah, three. It says here, but that might be more. What are you D- getting that from? Old reptile database. Yeah. Uh, that's probably a decent estimate then, for now. Yeah, three. Okay, cool. So uh, yeah, if you want to see some photos of an elephant, or what I assume to be an elephant trunk, maybe it's a different one. <laughs> I don't know. It's hard to know just by looking, but um. It might not be. It might be a... Um... Anyway, I digress. It doesn't matter. Uh, yeah, so that's the correction from Scott in a roundabout way. Yes, we got there. We managed it. Uh, anything else dramatic? Uh, I can't think of anything else whatsoever. Dramatic okay. or non. So I think okay. we're there. Awesome. Yeah, so uh, as always, if you want to get in touch, herphighlights at gmail.com, facebook.com slash herphighlights, or Twitter, we're at herphighlights. Um, yeah, I think all that remains to be said is thank you for listening. I think so. I think it's worth reminding people that this was a episode uh, chosen by a Patreon. Patreon? Patrons? Patrons? Pa- whatever the correct individual term for people that support Survivor via Patreon. Yeah. So thanks a lot to Philip Iovino for suggesting it and even going so far as to actually send us papers, which we chose to do because they were fascinating. So yeah, thanks that's, a lot. That's what I was going to say. That's what I was going to ask say to people is like, don't feel like you need to provide us papers. It's appreciated, but absolutely not necessary. You can leave that up to us if, if, if you want. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Like literally all you need to say is, I want an episode on... Crested geckos, and we'll make it happen if we can. Well, yeah, and then they say acro recorded a problem. Like, uh, a few more studies would help. Yeah. Well, we went back in time a bit for this one, and I'm glad we did because yes, it was cool. Sweet. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's it. Thank you for listening. Excellent. Thank you for listening. What's going on? Your you've got some strange noises coming from your end, Ben. Yeah, it's a beetle. It's a beetle. It sounds like someone cutting down a tree. Yeah, it's one of those. Yeah, it's one of those chainsaw beetles. Oh. There's nothing I can do about That's it. A cha- <laughs> there's a chainsaw beetle in your in your vicinity. But uh, I've I've spooked it away anyway. Good. Just if it starts making more noise, go and spook it again. <laughs> <laughs>